turn your Bibles again this morning to the book of Luke, and we've come to the end of chapter 10, and this morning to the beginning of chapter 11. So turn to Luke 11, verse 1, and we'll read all the way down through verse 13. Luke 11, 1 through 13. It happened that while Jesus was praying in a certain place, after he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John also taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. Then he said to them, suppose one of you has a friend and goes to him at midnight and says to him, friend, lend me three loaves for a friend of mine has come to me from a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And from inside he answers and says, do not bother me. The door has already been shut and my children and I are in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. So I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. Now suppose one of you fathers is asked by his son for a fish. He will not give him a snake instead of a fish, will he? Or if he asks for an egg, he will not give him a scorpion, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children... How much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Father, as we come to Your Word again this morning, we pray that we wouldn't um, take it lightly, God, that we wouldn't take it for granted, that we have the privilege of knowing what You say, that we would hold this book in our hands with great joy, great sense of privilege. And that we would listen to what Jesus has to say in response to the request, teach us to pray. So do that now. Teach us to pray. Teach us about yourself. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we get to Jesus' lengthy and memorable instructions on prayer, which begin in verse 2, I think we would do well simply by noticing that the request made of him was an exceedingly wise Request. Did you notice that? Lord, teach us to pray. What an outstanding thing for the disciples to ask. What a sensible thing for any Christian to say, Lord, teach us to pray. So I say the disciples display great wisdom in asking Jesus to instruct them in this way. It was wisdom, first of all, simply because they were humble enough to ask. Because they were modest enough to admit that they were in many ways ignorant on this great subject of prayer. And that's always an intelligent thing to do, isn't it? That's always a wise thing to do. To admit when you don't know. To admit your ignorance. And to be able to say, Lord, teach us. It was also a wise request precisely because the request was concerning prayer. Lord, teach us to pray. Prayer is so vital to the lives of our souls, isn't it? And therefore, there are few better practical Christian considerations that we could give our time to than to truly learn how to pray. There are few things that should be more important to us as God's people than to be able to faithfully and fruitfully 
pray to him. These men could have asked Jesus any number of things. They could have asked him how to be good financial stewards or how to run a Bible study in their homes or how to prepare a sermon or how to be good husbands or how to evangelize their neighbors. All important and helpful things for them to know. But I think they began here in the right place. They began by asking Jesus to teach them a Christian discipline, which if we hope to do all of those other things correctly, will be invaluable in undergirding those things and strengthening those things and giving rise to all the other good things that we should be doing. And so we should be praying with the disciples. Lord, teach us to pray. And then the disciples were wise to ask what they asked, to request what they requested, because in doing so, they avoided two extremes to which many Christians fall prey. Some Christians, on the one hand, are not really sure they can pray. They think that they don't know enough theological words, they don't know enough spiritual jargon, maybe they're not spiritual enough to actually have any kind of meaningful conversation with the Lord, and so they leave prayer largely to the professionals but the disciples obviously didn't think like that and remember they weren't religious professionals at the time in which we find them here in Luke 11 they were still bumbling around trying to figure out what Jesus was really all about and making quite a bit of a hash of it all and yet that didn't prevent them from believing that they should and that they could pray to a heavenly father they understood enough I say to know that God's ears are open to those who come to him humbly in prayer. So they avoided that extreme, but there are other Christians at the opposite extreme who say things like, prayer's not difficult. It's just talking to God. And while I understand that the motivation behind that kind of thinking is to keep the pendulum from going back the other direction, to keep people from thinking that they can't pray because they don't know all the correct religious jargon, I can't help but think that the phrase that some of you have heard and some of us have said, prayer is just talking to God, is a little bit of a precarious thing to say. For can we really say we're just talking when the person to whom we're just talking is the maker of all that is and the judge of all? All of the earth. So we mustn't assume that all there is to prayer is closing our eyes and saying whatever comes to our minds. We wouldn't talk to a human judge that way. We wouldn't talk to the President of the United States that way. We wouldn't even walk into a nursing home and talk to an elderly person that way. We would think about what we're going to say. And so if all there were to prayer is just talking to God, then no one would have ever any need to request what the disciples requested here in verse 1. Would they? Lord, teach us to pray. There's a right way to do it. There's something that we need to know. There's some things that we need to be taught. And we wouldn't have any need for those teachings in verses 2 through 13 if prayer was really just talking to God. So there is a right way to pray, the disciples apparently understood. That's why they made this very astute request in verse 1. That's not to say prayer is complicated or that it's beyond the average Christian. No. All who call God Father, in verse 2, may call upon His name in prayer. But when they do, as verses 2 through 13 make plain, there is a right and a good and a fruitful way to do it. And that's what the disciples were concerned to know. And Jesus was more than happy to oblige, more than happy to teach them, and by extension to teach us to pray. And so I want to just map out for you what He says and map out for you what we're going to be saying in the next few minutes. Jesus really makes three points of application about prayer. Three pieces of instruction as to the way of prayer. 
He discusses in verses 2 through 4 what we should pray. He discusses in verses 5 through 8 how we should pray. And then he discusses in verses 9 through 13 why we should pray. What we should pray, how we should pray, and why we should pray. So consider with me, first of all, what we should pray in verses 2 through 4. And I just want to read those verses again. And he said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. So what we have here is a shortened version of what we normally refer to, as I said, as the Lord's Prayer. Most of us are familiar with that longer version, which is found in the sixth chapter of Matthew's Gospel. In fact, some of us grew up in religious contexts where we learned to repeat that with regularity during Sunday services. Others of us grew up learning it in Sunday school somewhere along the way. And so Luke's shortened version of the Lord's Prayer might, to many of our ears, sound a little bit odd and even a little bit choppy. But we should note that there's a good reason why Luke 11 reads differently from Matthew 6. Whereas Matthew's version of the prayer comes as a single point in the middle of a much longer sermon that Jesus preached, normally called the Sermon on the Mount, Luke's version of the prayer was given by Jesus not in the middle of a sermon, but as a response to a specific request from his disciples. And so it would appear that Jesus taught his disciples how to pray using this basic formula on at least two occasions. In Matthew 6 and in Luke 11. Two different times. And he said in both places basically the same thing, but not exactly the same thing. And the fact that he didn't say exactly the same thing both different times actually should help us not only in understanding why Matthew 6 and Luke 11 are slightly different, but in another way as well. Namely, if Jesus taught the disciples to pray on more than one occasion, at least two occasions, and if what he said on those two occasions was slightly different, then it seems highly possible that Jesus' main intention for the Lord's Prayer was not that it be used primarily as a poetic refrain for us to learn and repeat on Sundays, but that he used it for another reason. In other words, if the purpose of prayer were merely to be memorized, the purpose of the Lord's Prayer were merely to be memorized and repeated, then surely Jesus would have memorized it and repeated it himself, word for word. But the fact that he spoke differently in Luke than he did in Matthew is likely a hint that he intended for us to use this prayer not mainly for its exact wording, but for the kinds of requests that it teaches us to make. So Jesus was teaching us what to pray, not by way of repetition mainly, but by way of example. Now, it's certainly not wrong to memorize or repeat the Lord's Prayer, and there are many ways that it is helpful. But the Lord's Prayer is not mainly a text to memorize. It's mainly a model or an outline to follow. It's an outline that reminds us of the kinds of things we ought to be asking of our Heavenly Father regularly, not a simple mantra for us to learn and repeat. And therefore, as we scan down the list of the basic and generic prayer requests that we find here in verses 2 through 4, we should think to ourselves, now let me fill in the specifics. Here's the outline. Here are the kinds of things Jesus wants me to pray for. Now let me go in and think about how this fits into my life and into our world and fill in the blanks. So, Father, hallowed be your name because you're faithful. 
because you are holy, because you've forgiven us of our sins. We think about the different ways and reasons why we should be hallowing God's name, praising His name. And then the next request, may your kingdom come in Cincinnati in the life of my neighbor or my co-worker, where the Epps family serves in Brazil and so on. So the Lord's Prayer, both in Matthew 6 and in Luke 11, is a model. It teaches us what to pray, not word for word mainly, but in categories. And we could devote an entire sermon to each of the statements and requests that we find here in these verses. But I'm just going to content myself by walking through each of these requests and statements just a few minutes on each one. And first you should notice there the word Father. When you pray, say, Father, verse 2. It would be a great mistake if we just skimmed past that first word of this model prayer the way we usually skim past the words to whom it may concern at the top of a letter because we want to read about what the letter says. This is more than to whom it may concern or dear sir or madam at the beginning of a letter. When we are praying, we are talking, Jesus reminds us, to our heavenly Father. And that's important to remember. The word Father in verse 2 should remind us, first of all, that the kind of people who can indeed pray this way and who will pray this way are people who actually know God in this way. As Father. In other words, the prayer doesn't begin, Dear unknown God. Or, God, if you're out there, could you... That's not the way it works. Now, God can and does sometimes condescend and answer prayers of people who pray like that. But the prayers that are sure to have His ears are those that are prayed by His children. Those who understand what it means to call Him Father. Prayers that are prayed, in short, by those who have been adopted into His family by virtue of repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Those are the people who can call God Father and not merely Maker or Master. And those are the people who are to pray this prayer, the people who will want to pray like this. Do you know God like that? Just before we go on, do you know God like that? I mean, have you really repented of your sins and put your faith in Jesus such that when you think about God, the very first thing that comes to your mind is, He's my Father. He loves me and I belong to Him. If you have turned to God in that way, if you truly are God's child, if He really is your Father, then you ought to have every expectation that He will hear you and give you what is good. And so the opening word of the model prayer is Father as a reminder that we ought to come to God with the confidence that a little boy or a little girl would have approaching a daddy whom they know loves them and will give them what is good. In fact... I find it very helpful to be intentional about beginning my prayers with the word Father. Instead of just saying, Dear Lord, or God, uh, hi there, it's court, or uh, Lord, how are you today, or whatever it may be, I find it helpful to intentionally address God as Father. Not that those other phrases are necessarily wrong, but because the word Father evokes the tenderness and the confidence that Jesus wants us to sense and to have in prayer. It reminds me of my privilege to come as God's child and expect that He will hear me and help me. And so I try to be intentional to use this very word, Father. And then now look at the next phrase. Hallowed be your name, still in verse 2. Hallowed be your name. Here's a reminder that our first words in prayer ought not to be could you or would you or we ask you. 
Those kind of words ought to be a part of our prayer, to be sure. But the first words of our prayer after we address God as Father ought to be, Father, you are, or you have. In other words, you are good and do good. You are faithful. You are holy, 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 and so on. Those ought to be the first kinds of things that we say. Hallowed be your name. These words teach us that we ought not rush into God's presence, first of all, or merely with our lists of can you's and would you's. Instead, we ought to come into God's presence praising his name, hallowing it. Or in modern English, the phrase, the word hallow would mean to set his name apart as holy, as worthy of honor. Do you do that when you pray? Take time to make sure you hallow God's name before asking for God's gifts. If you do, if you begin your prayers by honoring and praising God rather than just asking for stuff, the kinds of things that you ask for will follow suit. If you are hallowing God's name, praying for things or or just speaking to God His glory, then you will naturally want to pray for things that will bring about His glory. Rather than asking for things that we believe will glorify and honor ourselves, we'll want to ask for things that glorify and honor our Father, whose name we have just finished hallowing. And that brings us to the next segment of the prayer. What kinds of things glorify and honor the Father? Well, that we pray still in verse 2, Your kingdom come. Your kingdom come. Now, some people take this, and it could be that this is what Jesus means, a prayer that Jesus would return again and that he would fully and finally usher in God's kingdom in the new heavens and the new earth. And it may mean that. Your kingdom come. Come back, Jesus. Usher in your kingdom. But we've noticed that Jesus in the book of Luke has been using the word kingdom primarily in this way, as synonymous with the gospel and the spread of the gospel. As synonymous, kingdom is synonymous most of the time in Jesus' words in Luke with forgiveness and new life that are available to those who trust Jesus. And so I think what Jesus is teaching us to pray here at the end of verse 2 is in essence this. Father, let your kingdom come. Namely, let your gospel spread. Bring people into your kingdom by faith in Jesus. Save people from their sins. Bring people to Christ, Lord. Bring my neighbors to Christ. Bring my straying sister or my co-worker or my son or my daughter to Jesus. Bring the hidden people of the Amazon basin in Brazil to Jesus. Bring the masses of Muslims in Central Asia to Jesus. Bring the Navajo of New Mexico to Jesus. Bring the tribes of Ethiopia and the people in the houses out here on Ridge Avenue all around us this morning who are sleepwalking to eternity. Bring them to Jesus. That's what he's asking us to pray for, for the advance of the gospel. Do you pray for the advance of the gospel? in the neighborhood where you live and among the nations that God has placed upon this earth? Do you pray for specific people and specific missionaries and specific peoples and nations? Here it is in the Lord's Prayer. Your kingdom come. And I hope that kind of praying fits its way into your hearts and lips. And then the next request, verse 3, Give us each day our daily bread. So though we should prioritize praying for God's name and for God's kingdom, it's not wrong to pray for ourselves. God cares intimately about our needs. God cares about your paycheck and your enrollment status and your light bill and your grocery bill and your thermostat 
and your brake pads and your back aches and your performance reviews and your final exams and everything in between. All of those things would fall under this broad category of our daily bread. And so I encourage you not to be afraid or ashamed to pray about all of life's tiny little details. After all, Jesus says in verses 11 through 13, think about how much you care about your children. Don't you want your children to have a good breakfast and to do as well as they can in school and to have decent shoes on their feet? Then how much more, Jesus urges us to, to think, how much more does your heavenly Father care that you have your daily bread? So give us each day our daily bread. And then look at verse 4. And forgive us our sins, for we also ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted against us. Forgive us our sins. Here's a reminder that we ought to regularly, regularly, regularly be confessing our sins and bathing afresh in the cleansing waters of the gospel. We ought daily, really, to be saying with the tax collector at the temple in Jerusalem, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. No matter how far we advance in becoming like Jesus, none of us are there yet. And we all have so many reasons to be humbled and to confess. Indeed, notice that we are asked or taught to ask forgiveness for our sins, plural, and not just our sin, singular. In other words, if Jesus asks us just to confess our sins singular, it might be that what Jesus were saying is just ask God for forgiveness because you have sin in your life, because you by nature are sinful. And we should ask forgiveness for that, but that's not what Jesus says here. He teaches us to confess our sins plural, meaning I think we're not just to confess generally that we are sinful, spiritual, ne'er-do-wells, but that we ought to be confessing spiritually. We ought to be owning up individually, to specific sins that we have committed. We ought each one of us to be confessing each of our individual sins as we're made aware of them. That's why I say we should be doing this regularly. And notice in the middle of verse 4 that Jesus points out the fact that it would be a bit two-faced for us to come to God asking Him to forgive us if we are unwilling to forgive other people who sin against us. Are we better than God? that we are allowed to hold grudges while He forgives us fully and freely all our sins, which are far more an offense against Him than any sin that we could ever commit against another person or that they could commit against us. You see, it doesn't make any sense for us to hold grudges if we're going to ask God for forgiveness. And asking God to forgive our sins, He says we need to be aware that we're supposed to be forgiving others their sins as well. In fact, let me just ask you right now, is there someone out there whose sins you have been refusing to forgive? Now, I'm not asking you to go home and sort of meditate and to think back and remember the boy who hit you with his lunchbox in the second grade and whom you've gotten over it, but you never actually tracked him down and said, I forgive you. That's not what I'm talking about. Surely you're not still angry about that. What I'm asking, rather, is if there is someone with whom you know that you are still consciously bitter after all these years, or perhaps after the argument that you had this weekend or even this morning in the car. You know that you came in this morning with a bad attitude towards that person and you had planned to go out with the same. Well, Jesus says, forgive us our sins, for we ourselves also forgive everyone who is indebted against us. And before we leave this petition about forgiving, 
our sins. Let's remind ourselves of why God is able and willing to do that. Why would God even answer the prayer in verse 4a? Why would God forgive our sins? Well, it's not because they're not really a big deal, is it? And it's not just because he's a nice guy and he likes to turn the other cheek. No, you know the answer. The reason God can and does forgive our sins is because he's such a nice guy that he's such a good God that he is such a lover of our souls that he sent his only begotten son to pay the penalty that our sins deserve. That's why we can pray Luke 11, 4a. And we must never forget that. Indeed, I would just urge you, when you're praying, when you're confessing your sins and seeking God's forgiveness, I think you will do well to remind yourself out loud of exactly why you were able even to ask that. God, I blew it again. I have no excuse for myself. I don't deserve your forgiveness. In fact, apart from Jesus, you would be well within your rights just to wipe me off the face of the earth right this minute. And yet, God, I come to you just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me. That's why I'm coming to you, Lord. That's why I'm sure that you will forgive me. Only because of Jesus. So because of what Jesus has done, Father, forgive us our debts. Some of you may need to pray like that for the very first time right this moment. And others of you who have been Christians for years now may just need to bow your heads in the middle of this sermon and speak that way to your Heavenly Father about some sin that you know is hanging over your head like a dark cloud even now. And then finally, the Lord's Prayer concludes verse 4 with this request, and lead us not into temptation. Lead us not into temptation. Father, I know that you sometimes allow your people to grow by allowing us to be tempted and tried. Holy Spirit, I know that you even led Jesus himself out into the wilderness to be tempted 40 days in Matthew 4. But would you shield me from that today? Would you not lead me into temptation today? Or if I am in temptation, would you grant me the strength to withstand the temptations that come? Do you ever pray like that before work or school begins? God, you know I've got that difficult conversation that I have to have today. Will you please keep me from losing my cool? God, you know I have to walk beside that magazine rack this morning. Would you please help me to fix my eyes on you and not what's there on the front of those magazines? Do you pray about your sins before they happen or only after they happen? I think most of us are guilty of praying for our sins mostly after they happen and not before. And I think for some of us, that's one of our greatest effects. We end up praying verse 4a far more often than we would like because we pray verse 4b far less often than we should. Hear that well and look at the verses while I'm saying it. We end up praying verse 4a far more often than we would like because we pray verse 4b far less often than we should. And we ought to pray daily, lead us not into temptation. So there you have it. That was my extraordinary long answer to the question, what should we pray? In short, we should pray the Lord's Prayer, as we have it here in Luke 11 and as we have it in Matthew chapter 6. We should use it as a kind of grid, reminding us of the various things that are important to bring before our God regularly. So let me ask you, before we leave this first point and move more quickly through the last two points, 
Is there room in your prayers for all the various kinds of petitions and praises that are found here in these verses? Do you really pray like this? Now, I'm not suggesting that every time you bow your head and close your eyes that you should have one eye open to Luke 11 and make sure you tick everything off the list. I'm just saying, as you look at the overall contours of your prayer life, maybe in a five to seven day span, do you find yourself consistently howling God's name? Consistently praying for the advance of His gospel kingdom? Consistently bringing Him your daily bread kinds of concerns. Consistently confessing your sins. And consistently praying about your sins before they happen and not just after they happen. Before they happen so that they might not actually happen. Do you pray like this? This is a wonderful passage on prayer. A great resource to teach us what we should pray. And I hope you'll think it through and apply all of its concerns to your regular prayer life. And that word regular brings us to our second main heading. So we've considered what we should pray, but now let's think about how we should pray. Verses 5 through 8. In verses 2 through 4, Jesus teaches us by way of a list or an outline, if you will. But he goes on in the next four verses to teach us by way of a story. And I want you to listen again to what he said. Then he said to them, Suppose one of you has a friend and goes to him at midnight and says to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has come to me from a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And from inside he answers and says, Do not bother me. The door has already been shut and my children and I are in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence he will get up and give him as much as he needs. So picture it here. We have a Middle Eastern family, apparently all sleeping in the same room. Maybe some of them on the floor. Maybe they're all on a raised platform at the end of the house, which was common. But they're evidently all sleeping close enough together that if this man gets out of the bed to answer the door, he's going to wake up the whole house. And so he's just not going to do it. And he says to himself, Benjamin can knock all he wants. But someone else is going to have to give him his bread tonight. But after he's made that clear to his friend and he's rolled back over in the bed, he hears another knock at the door. Please, I really need your help. I'm not going away, Jacob, until you come to this door. And you can almost hear the groggy, sort of under his breath sort of response. You've got to be kidding me. What time is it? Didn't he just knock two minutes ago? If you just think about what Jesus is saying, it's a rather rather comical scene between two friends. And the two friends apparently go round and round like that until finally, because his friend won't leave him alone, the man finally sighs deeply, rolls out of bed, goes into the kitchen, gets three loaves of rye or sourdough or whatever it may have been, cracks open the door, shoves the bread out the door, and then shuts it again and goes back and gets in his bed. All because, all because his friend would not leave him alone. Now, don't be confused. The point of this story is not that God is sometimes asleep when we pray or that he does not want to be bothered, verse 7, with our prayers unless we really twist his arm. This story is not really about what God is like. This story is about what we should be like. The story is about us. Namely, that we should pray, verse 8, with persistence. Persistence. Some have said that this word translated persistence could be translated shamelessness. The point is that we ought to persist. We ought to be almost shameless in not leaving God alone. 
That's the point. God is inviting us with this story to pester him with our prayers. Jesus is teaching us that we shouldn't give up just because God doesn't seem to answer us right away. Rather, we should just keep praying and praying until the necessary loaves of bread come out the door or fall from the sky or God provides in whatever way he sees fit. It's right here. God says, bother me, pester me. But why don't we do it? Why do we, all of us, many times knock only once or twice and then go home disappointed? Well, one reason could be a misunderstanding of the purpose of prayer. We might assume that prayer is really a mechanism for informing God about our circumstances and our needs so that he has all the necessary facts and information to enable him to intervene. And if that is how we think about prayer, that it's about informing God of what's going on down here on the earth, then we will likely not be very persistent in it. Why? Because after praying once, we've already given God all the necessary information. We've already said everything that needed to be said, and we'll update God further if anything changes, but we're just going to tell Him what needs to be told, and then we'll just wait and see what happens. And indeed, if the point of prayer is simply to inform God of what's going on way down here on planet Earth, then that view of prayer, I'll just tell Him once, would be consistent and logical. Because... If all God needs to do is be informed so that he can act, then a single memo sent heavenward would be all that was needed. We've told God what he needed to know, and now it's up to him to respond. Maybe he'll get out of the bed, maybe he'll answer our prayers, but then again, maybe he won't. But that's not really what prayer is all about, filling God in on what he needs to know. Not at all. In fact, contrary to what Bette Midler taught us all in the 1990s, God is not merely watching us from a distance. It's not that God needs to be informed of what's going on down here on the earth. It's not that the world looks blue and green, but that if God could just get a little closer, he would see that everything is, all hell is broken loose. That's not it. God knows what's going on down here intimately. He knows the hair on your head. Jesus tells us, in fact, that God knows what we need before we ask him, Matthew 6, 8. So prayer is not about informing God of what's going on and telling him what we need and then sitting back hoping that he was listening and hoping that he'll do something. So if prayer is not that, if it's not informing God, if it's not updating our heavenly Facebook status so God won't be out of the loop as to what's going on in our lives and how he can be involved, then what is it? What is the purpose of prayer? Well, it's an admission to God that we can't do it on our own. Whatever it may be in that given situation, prayer is an admission that we need your help. Prayer is especially persistent prayer, is a way of showing God that we're serious about needing His intervention. And that's why, coming back to verse 8, persistence is so important. It's not that God is hard of hearing. It's not that He doesn't really want to get up out of the bed. And it's not that He needs more information. Remember, this story in verses 5-8 through is about what we ought to be like, not what God is like. And what it teaches that we ought to be like is that we ought to be continually knocking at God's door at all hours of the day and night. Not because He needs waking up, not because He needs filling in, but because we need to show Him that we're serious. We need to show Him that we're desperate. We need to show Him that we know that if He doesn't answer, no one will. So we're not going to just pray once. We're far too desperate for that. We're going to pray and pray and pray and then pray some more because we truly believe that if God doesn't answer that door, 
If God doesn't provide the bread that we need, if God doesn't deliver us from our temptations, if God doesn't forgive us our sins, if God doesn't go out and make his kingdom to come on the mission field, if God doesn't save our children, then we're sunk. If God doesn't do it, no one else will. That's what prayer is about. And so how should we pray? Very simple, with persistence. With persistence. And persistence requires desperation and it requires earnestness and it requires most of all faith that God will intervene. Do you pray persistently? Just in general and then about specific needs that you have? Or are you prone to send up a quick prayer and then to get busy fixing things on your own? Forcing things to go your way. That's another reason why some of us pray intermittently rather than persistently. Because we're all too quick to take matters into our own hands rather than leaving them in God's hands. I'm convinced that this is one of the great sources of frustration in many of our lives, at least in my life. We try to force things to go the way that they should. Or to borrow from Matthew's version of the Lord's Prayer, we try to force God's will or what we think is God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. You ever try to do that? Try to force God's will to be done. You know what God wants and you are going to make it happen. There's only one problem with that. You're not God. (laughs) And so you're not able to enforce His will. You cannot make people see the world through biblical lenses as hard as you try. You cannot make people behave properly by lecturing them and berating them. Sometimes we can't even force the lid to come off the pickle jar, can we? And when we find ourselves trying to force things, we often end up making them far worse, don't we? So we need to be praying about big things and small instead of forcing. And we need to be praying with persistence, demonstrating by praying again and again and again that we know that God is the only one who can make His will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And before we leave the subject of persistence, allow me to point out one other reason why we may fail to pray persistently. Maybe because we have a wrong view of prayer. Maybe because we're trying to force things ourselves. But maybe thirdly, because we've just given up. We don't pray persistently because we've lost hope. We don't believe that God is really going to answer. And again, let me just ask you where you sit this morning. Is there someone or something for whom you have given up praying? Now, I know sometimes God may tell us to stop praying. Evidently, that was the case with Paul in 2 Corinthians 12 when he prayed three times and three times only about some physical defect in his body that God had chosen to leave in place for Paul's good. But that's not what I'm talking about now. Right now, rather, I'm asking if there's something or someone for whom you have given up praying. It's not that God has said to you, for your good, my answer to that prayer is no. Rather, it's that God simply hasn't answered yet, and you've given up, given up hoping and waiting and believing that He will. And consequently, you've given up praying. Anyone or anything for whom you have given up praying, maybe today will be the day to start praying for them or it again. To use the logic we're about to see in verse 13. Now, if your friend, being evil, would get up at midnight to loan you a cup of sugar because you kept knocking and knocking and knocking, how much more will your Heavenly Father, who loves to answer His door, hear and answer those who pray 
and do not lose heart. How much more will your heavenly Father reward your persistence? Don't give up praying. Now that question, how much more will your heavenly Father reward your persistence, gives us a hint at our final main head into which we turn now. We've considered what we should pray, verses 2 through 4. We've considered how we should pray, verses 5 through 8, namely with persistence. Now let's finish by hearing what Jesus has to say about why we should pray in verses 9 through 13. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. Now suppose one of you fathers is asked by his son for a fish. He will not give him a snake instead of a fish, will he? Or if he is asked for an egg, he will not give him a scorpion, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Why should we pray? Very simply because when we do, God answers Simple. If you will persistently ask, it will be given to you. If you will persistently seek, you will find. And as verses 5 through 8 already taught us, if you will persistently knock, the door will be open to you. God answers prayer. And so it just doesn't make any sense then for us not to pray. Everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks, the door will be opened. Now, this isn't name-it-and-claim-it theology. In other words, this is not to say that if you walk out of these doors this morning and ask God for a new Corvette, that it will be in your driveway when you get home. The Bible does present the possibility that God, for your own good and because He loves you, sometimes says no to your prayers. See Paul in 2 Corinthians 12 in the thorn in his flesh. And the Bible also presents the possibility that we could be told no because we ask James 4.3 with wrong motives. So this is not just a blanket guarantee that you can ask God anything you want anytime as selfishly as you want and God will give it to you. James says you, don't, you ask and you don't receive because you ask with wrong motives. But the very same James who said that, that God sometimes does not answer our prayers because we're selfish, also said one verse prior to that, that as a general rule for God's people, you do not have because you do not ask. And here in Luke 10, Jesus is simply putting that same truth in the form of a positive statement. James says you do not have because you do not ask. Jesus says here you have because you ask. If you ask, you will have. In other words, what Jesus is saying here is, as a general rule, God answers the prayers of his children who persistently ask and seek and knock. That's why, once again, it's important to know whether or not we are God's children. It's important to know whether or not we've been adopted into his family by faith in Jesus, because the promises in verses 9 through 13 are specifically for God's children, specifically for those, verse 13, who know God, not simply as their creator and their judge, but as their heavenly father. So I ask you one more time, do you know God is your heavenly Father? Have you repented of your sins and placed your faith in Jesus so that you have been adopted as his child? If you have, if you know God as Father, then the logic of verses 11 through 13 should make perfect sense to you. God is your Father. Surely He won't deceive you. Surely He won't play tricks on you. If you ask Him for a fish, He won't secretly put a snake into your hand hoping to watch you be bitten. If you ask Him for an egg, He won't give you a scorpion, which apparently when it rolls itself into a ball looks very egg-like. 
God won't do that to you. He's not out to trick you. He's not out to deceive you. He's not out to say, hey, knock on this door, and when you open the door, there's nothing there. It's not what's behind door number one, two, and three. It's behind, I'm behind the door. You, you knock and I'll answer. I'm not going to fool you. You wouldn't do that with your children, would you? You wouldn't trick your children in this way. You wouldn't just blow them off either if they kept coming to you asking for your help again and again. Surely not. So surely, Jesus concludes, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more does your heavenly Father know how to answer the prayers of His children? If you being evil know how to give your children good things, then surely God does the same. Every day for the last couple of weeks, Julia and Andrew asked me to camp out with them on the basement floor. Literally every day. And every day, for various different reasons, I said, not tonight. Not tonight. And it was a scene, eventually a bit like the one in verses 5 through 8. They were not going to give up that easily. They were like the man who needed bread at midnight. And they just kept knocking and knocking and knocking on that same door. Asking and asking and asking that same question every day. Dad, can we camp out tonight? But because they were so persistent... I had it in my mind that eventually, when the time was just right, I was going to answer their requests. And so Friday night, we finally did camp out, didn't we? And they were very, very happy. And if I, being evil, if I, sinner that I am, if I, the dad who makes tons of mistakes and has often to ask his children for forgiveness, if I am willing and able to make my children smile like that, How much more does your Heavenly Father know how to give you what is good? How much more? Do you ever ponder that logic? Do you ever mull over Luke 11, 13 in your mind, thinking about all the ways practically that you love your children or your grandchildren? Or how your parents or your grandparents went out of their way to take care of you? Do you ever just just make the correlation, draw out the pictures in your mind that Jesus is painting here? And do you realize how much more committed then God must be to His children? So why would you ever fail to pray? Why would you ever try to take matters into your own hands? Surely my Father will take care of me. That's what we ought to be saying. Let me go and ask Him again. I know that eventually, when the time is right, He's going to say yes. I know that eventually, one of these times, it's going to be the time for Him to pour out that blessing that I've been waiting on. That's the logic of a child of God. My dad's not going to leave me hanging. He hasn't answered yet, but I know that he will. And so let's just go and ask Him again. And one of the great blessings Jesus says we should be persistently asking for at the end of verse 13 is the gift of the Holy Spirit. That is to say, one of the prayers that God will most assuredly answer is a persistent prayer for the help and the filling of the Holy Spirit. So we pray, Father, would you fill me with your Holy Spirit? Would you allow him to have the freedom in my life to move in extraordinary ways, convicting me of sins that I haven't been willing to be convicted of? emboldening me to share the gospel, empowering me for service, advancing me in holiness. God, would you pour out, Father, would you pour out upon me a greater measure of your Holy Spirit's power? And would you do that in our church and in our city? Would you bring about a true heaven-sent revival? You're my dad. I know you want to do this. I know you love me. I know that you have good purposes for me. So I'm just going to keep asking you to pour out your Holy Spirit upon me and my family and my church and my city. We ought to be constantly, like that 
at the doors of heaven, pounding away until the Lord should arise and open the windows of heaven and answer that prayer and so many others with it. And so I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened.